1: Plug in and get
0: connected to hot tips, interesting perspectives, and expert travel advice as we cultivate travel
1: insight through intelligent conversation. On this episode of Talk Travel Asia, we're going to get way off the beaten path and truly out there. We'll chat with former bike magazine editor-in-chief, journalist, explorer, and all-around adventurer, Bryce Minnick about his mountain biking expeditions in Asia, including a recent film he made, The Korra, where he and some friends spent 10 days circumnavigating Himalayan peaks in Sichuan province, China. So put on your biking kits, strap on your helmet and headphones, and get ready for an exciting ride ahead. From Bangkok, Thailand, I'm Scott Coates, and with me as always is... Hey, Scott, Trevor ranges here
0: in Phnom Penh, Cambodia. I see that uh, you had recently been on a biking trip.
1: Yeah, so between when this airs and when we're recording, there's a bit of a gap, but it is rainy season in Thailand and the dirt in Northern Thailand is hard and clayish and super slippery. So I decided to really do kind of a first uh, road trip ever. And I took my specialized carbon frame um, bike and went up there and spent eight days cycling along the Burmese Thai border and then down the Loatian Thai border. I think I did about 480 some kilometers and 6,800 vertical meters. And uh, yeah, it was epic. It was just great to be on the bike. You know, it's it's such a neat way to travel.
0: Yeah. You know, I mean, we talked about this uh, recently, just a few months back, we had uh, an episode about mountain biking in Bhutan with uh, Darren Bearcloth. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I admitted then that, uh, you know, I haven't spent as much time on a bike you have but you know this year I, I have been using my bike a lot to get around uh Phnom Penh just as my personal transportation and in general when I do travel I do like to take a bike out from the hotel just to like explore a city and stuff like that um but recently I was up in Siem Reap and our friend Adam uh from Grasshopper Adventures who has also been on the show mm-hmm. a few times he loaned me uh, one of these great new Cannondale mountain bikes that are motor assisted an e-bike and uh yeah, it, it's not like an e-bike because you can just ride it like a regular mountain bike, but sure. then it has different like things to, to give you, like there's a turbo boost and stuff like that. So for me, I, I borrowed it not because I'm lazy, but because I was going to visit some remote temples north of the Angkor Temple complex, and they were a bit off the beaten path. So there was some mud, rice fields, uh, you know, some terrain that, that the motor actually gave you help getting the boost through so you wouldn't get stuck in the mud. And then uh, I know you like riding around the wall around the city of Angkor Thom. Yeah and just boosting yourself up those the the sides of the walls to get up there and then down at each gate uh, and then just even on top of the walls getting that little extra speed to to you know just cruise along and get some air here and there uh, really good fun
1: yeah well you know we've we've this is a second episode this year talking about mountain biking and i guess for me i i've started to do it about 22 23 years ago and i brought My uh, specialized rock hopper to Thailand when I moved here in 99 and since then, you know, I've done riding all over Thailand, specifically Chiang Rai and Mai. I've even taken it to the island of Koh Tao. I guess all around the temples of Angkor. I rode from Lhasa Tibet to Mount Everest Base Camp and onwards to Kathmandu. And I've done, what, the western half of the Annapurna Circuit. Uh, When I was living in Kuala Lumpur, I was near Bukit Kiara. I guess the point is, gosh, biking, whether you're on road, off road, it really makes so much possible, right? You can go to a super remote place, you connect with the people, you get some exercise and, and we just really get a, a charge out of biking. And, and the way we got exposed to Bryce here is, um, about a year ago, I was planning a trip to the Republic of Georgia and I stumbled on this YouTube video of called the trail to Kazbegi. And it was like three guys, their own packs, picking a trail using Google earth. Um, through the mountains of northern Georgia to this town, Kazbegi, which I visited shortly after. And then last year, so on 2019, a crew of pro mountain bikers was coming back from Bhutan, uh, transiting in Bangkok after filming a video called Chasing the Eddy," which we spoke with Darren Bearcloth about. And Bryce was part of that crew. So we thought, you know, hey, let's chat with Bryce about his adventures. But before we get to that, Trevor, how can people help sponsor this show?
0: Yeah, thanks, Scott. Uh, you know we we do take uh, a lot of time to make the show as nice as we can for our listeners, uh, and that includes uh, some great show notes on our website, talktravelasia.com. Mm-hmm. If you go to the talktravelasia.com website, there'll be a link there to donate to the show. We use Patreon. If you go to the Patreon website, you can also donate by looking for Talk Travel Asia. It, it isn't that expensive, to be honest, to make the show, but it adds up over the years. We've we've invested quite a bit into this hobby, and it is a hobby. And we do have some supporters and we greatly appreciate our supporters. Um, And I think just like getting some financial love, just uh, it it gives us motivation to keep us going too as well. Don't you think?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So thank you everyone in advance for your sponsorship and assistance. Let's bring Bruce Bryce in and get right to it. Our guest, Bryce Minnick, is an American with a passion for adventure. He's lived and worked all around the world, notably in the former Soviet Union, where he worked for the Moscow Times and Moscow Tribune, and in China, a country he's written three guidebooks about. He speaks four languages, English, Russian, Mandarin, and Cantonese almost died on a journey to the North Pole, and is now the Editor-in-Chief of Free Hub Magazine. He joins us from his home at Encinitas, California, which is just north of San Diego. Thanks for making time for us, Bryce. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, we like to start right at the beginning. Where are you originally from? Well, I was born in Washington,
2: D.C., and then was raised all over the United States because my father is a national park ranger. So we moved around a lot. And uh, that kind of, I think, at an early age instilled kind of the wanderlust in me and also the love for, for wilderness and wide open spaces. And, you know, just growing up, living in national parks. At at that time, park rangers' families would actually live in um, housing that was in the park itself. That really kind of, looking back, I can see that that really did kind of laid a framework for (laughs) who I was going to become.
1: Yeah, I I did a lot of reading about you yesterday. And uh, we'll link on our show notes on TalkTravelAsia.com to stories and auxiliary information about you. And I know you've lived in all over the world. So why are you based in Encinitas now?
2: Well, for a couple of reasons, one of which is because I'm a lifetime surfer, and just a lot of old friends from when I was younger who live in Southern California. And so the kind of proximity to old friends and connections and then consistent waves has I've been here probably for the past 13 years as my main base and the other reason is because it's kind of the epicenter of the action sports industry and when I moved back when I left Asia after living there for over a decade I ended up getting a job as the editor of a mountain bike magazine called bike magazine and it was at the time, based in San Juan Capistrano, California, and then later San Clemente. So it's all, it's all right here. It's easy for me to m- maintain a consistent amount of work, both in terms of feature writing, photography, and being involved in new mountain bike films.
0: So how old were you when you first started mountain biking and, and what got you into that passion?
2: I think I was 18 when I got my first mountain bike, and that was before they were even of uh, before full suspension bikes even existed. I, I just had my 50th birthday about a week ago. So if it gives you any indication of where I sit on the broader timeline of mountain biking's history. You know, I think it's just the freedom that a bicycle can give you is probably the, the biggest and most lasting appeal of it. And, you know, fast forward seven years after that, when I first moved to China, After living in Russia for several years, you know, at that time, China was the land of the bike. It was the kingdom of the bicycle. That was in 1995 and it was before cars had become such a big thing in China and there was not much of a middle class in China yet. And everybody went everywhere on bicycles. Steel flying pigeons were everywhere and. I was just so invigorated by that and by the ability to just jump on my bike and go anywhere that it really got me back into both riding a bicycle a lot, then making it my primary means of adventure.
1: Yeah. So that sort of leads right into our next question. like, When did this hobby or this interest in bike riding become professional for you?
2: It actually didn't become truly professional until, until I started working for bike magazine, because that time it was the world's best selling and, you know, best known uh, mountain bike magazine in the world. And then all of a sudden I had instant access to all the world's best professional riders and could start working on stories and projects. And what later became film projects with them. So I suppose on a professional level, that's really when it technically happened. But, but I did get, we did get a low level sponsorship from giant bicycles in 1995. We met, we met some of the guys that, that ran the Kunshan factory, uh, down around Shanghai and they gave us their first carbon frames that they were ever making for mountain bikes. And that was called the the giant KDEX. And then they had one that was a monocoque frame that's not bonded that was called the Monex. And they gave my friend and I those bikes to, to use on our ride from Beijing to the border of Pakistan. And that was a three and a half month trip. So <laughs> I kind of like to endearingly think of that as my first professional sponsorship, even though it was just a... A free bike and some
0: gear. Still a good deal. Yeah, sounds like a good one too with the carbon frame. And we're going to talk about that the Beijing to Pakistan trip in a second. But I remember, you know, I was watching some of your videos and I, I heard something that was mentioned that said that you did a bunch of biking or you lived and biked A bit in Hong Kong, and we did an episode on hiking and camping in Hong Kong. So we and our listeners know a little bit about the the terrain there. Um, Was that one of the first places you rode a lot in Asia, or just one that you've been to a few times?
2: Well, it was after I had uh, had lived in in Beijing. I ended up moving to Hong Kong, and I ended up being you know I'm a permanent resident of Hong Kong. I still have my citizenship. So over the course of being based there for 10 years, I think it's safe to say I know every inch of quality trail there. It's interesting because a lot of the trails at that time were not mountain bike specific. They were the hiking trails that you've you've profiled um, on the podcast.
0: I, I think I remember that now. Yeah.
2: yeah. And, um, you know, and they were built by the Nepalese, the Gurkhas, the Nepalese Gurkhas built a lot of those during the colonial period. They're really great for mountain biking because they're gnarly. They've got these big stone slabs and steps and they're steep. And for someone who's into technical kind of hardcore mountain biking, they're awesome trails. On all the outlying islands like Lantau and Lama Island. And when you end up in the new territories that's up more towards the border with mainland China. So when you go ride those trails on a weekday when there's not many hikers out, you kind of have them all to yourself. And it's not even a safety risk to ride them at speed. And uh, one thing that's really interesting about Chinese culture is that even if you were riding a trail on the weekend and were blasting down some steep section, you know, encountered a a group of Hong Kong Chinese hikers, there's something about their kind of communal spirit that almost 99 or 100% of the time, they would immediately, like, cheer you on, get out of the way, like, step off to the side of the trail and cheer you on and say, like, oh, Sile, you know, like, good for you. And, which is a really cool thing that, you know, in some cultures there's more animosity between like walkers and hikers and mountain bikers. It that that kind of showed me that it doesn't necessarily have to be the case, you know, because the local people in Hong Kong are just stoked to see somebody out doing something that they perceive as being kind of an extreme sport and were very supportive. So I love I love Hong Kong and I've written a couple of features about it since then about the trails there. And I've got a bunch of friends who are the core, kind of the nucleus of the mountain bike community there. And the trails are good. And they're getting better and better because now they're cooperating with the International Mountain Bicycling Association and getting funding and grants for trail building projects that are more mountain bike specific. So good times ahead on, for Hong Kong, I think, and the mountain bike front.
1: Well, I'll be hitting you up in a in a year or two um for a bit of ice there because I've been pretty keen on riding in Hong Kong well, Bryce, we kind of touched on it a few moments ago, but uh i, I we've got to hear about this journey you did in nineteen ninety five from Beijing to Pakistan like how long was it? how long did it take? Give us a full dump on that trip it sounds epic
2: well we we first envisaged it because we we you know we were they're working in Beijing. A couple of friends of mine, and another American from Colorado, and an Englishman from from Liverpool. We all realized very quickly that we had a shared love for for riding bikes. And I had my work schedule uh, dialed in at the time where I was working evenings, and so I could I could spend all day like riding my bike all over Beijing, exploring different nooks and crannies. Then we would plan trips on the weekends to go to you know remote parts of the Great Wall of China because there's hundreds of ramparts everywhere, even around the Beijing municipality and Hebei province that are different eras of Great Wall from from different dynasties. But most of those were Ming Dynasty era. I found a bunch of maps in the in this cartographic store in in Beijing that would show us where all these ramparts were, and so we would spend entire weekends, we'd like leave on early Friday morning, ride all the way out to the, some remote stretch of Great Wall, and then stash our bikes in the bushes below it and climb up the side of it and sleep in the towers and stuff. It, it was just so invigorating. Like at the time, tourism wasn't for the Great Wall wasn't very heavy, except potentially to uh, Badaling and, you know, Mutianyu, the main, the main spots where tourists go. So we had it all to ourselves and we'd go out to the Ming and Ting and the Qing Dynasty tombs and ride our bikes out there and sleep. So then we we were having so much fun with this that we decided that we really needed to uh just do a big giant trip and see the entire country by bike. And our original plan was to keep the Great Wall um more or less in sight for the first 75% of the journey until until the Great Wall disappears in uh more towards uh out, out towards Gansu province. That was our original plan and we were able to pretty much stick to it. But yeah, we, we just decided, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna do this. We're gonna start in Beijing and ride to the border of Pakistan, essentially to Kashgar in the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, and try to keep the wall more or less in reach for the first two-thirds or Or seventy-five percent of the journey, which meant that we were on a lot of side roads, (laughs) and um, which is why we were really glad that we were we were on full suspension bikes at the time. The trip took us three and a half months. Um, One of our one of the three guys who we started with wasn't able to complete the journey, and he dropped out in Xi'an. And then me and my other buddy, his name's Scott Urban, ended up finishing it. And you know, two and a half months after that, we were in Kashgar and. That just opened up a whole new world for me, and I've been traveling by bike you know ever since for another twenty five years and have now made a career out of it, which is kind of funny looking back. What was the distance on that trip? I think it was about six thousand kilometers. What's happened over in recent over the past say eight or nine years and also through my work we've gravitated more into Taking the bike into more extreme environments where there's even not even a trail. I've thought back on that a lot. Like, what is actually harder between, you know, doing a thousand miles on some semblance of a dirt road and doing a hundred miles through just abject wilderness where there's no trail at all and you're going up and down giant boulder fields and things like that. Even though that sounds like a lot, and it was it was a huge accomplishment. Meant for us at the time, six thousand kilometers across
0: across China. So Bryce, with such a long trip, uh, both time and distance, and uh, seeing such diverse terrain, I imagine what were you know one or two of the highlight standout moments from from that experience.
2: Well, I think that first trip from Beijing to the border of Pakistan. China is such a vast and diverse country that it kind of changed throughout initially it was some of the just sweeping sections of great wall that we would that we'd be keeping in sight and trying to kind of follow along those then later towards the end the last third of our journey was we had to go South of the Taklamakan Desert, which is the world's second largest shifting sands desert after the Sahara. It took us a month to get around that desert. You know, the roads just blown over with sand and it made the going really tedious. We had to deal with a few giant sandstorms, which at their worst, they can suffocate you because, you know, because of the density of all the sand in the air. So we had some scary moments, you know, and that made it really memorable. (laughs) Um, But also just being in the middle of absolute solitude, camping out. We slept rough. We were kind of naive at the time because we didn't even have tents with us. And we would just find some spot on the side of whatever track that we were following, get in our sleeping bags. We didn't have sleeping pads or anything. That kind of set a framework that made subsequent adventures with better equipment seem a lot easier, you know.
1: So, I mean, back in 95, China was just starting to open up. Then it's opened up and now seems like it's pretty surveilled. Do you think this journey would even be possible today? Like, could you just head off and do that now?
2: It's hard to say. One thing about then, it wasn't, in terms of technology, it wasn't heavily surveilled, but most of the country was closed outsiders. So we did get arrested multiple times on that first journey, being in places that were what they say, Duiwai Kai Feng. It's not open to the outside. It was technically illegal for a foreigner to be in most of the places that we were riding. But at the time, if you like took a train from Beijing to Xi'an, you know, see the terracotta warriors or something, that train would go through areas of Shanxi province that were technically closed to foreigners. But it's not an issue because you're never getting off the train. But when you're actually riding a bicycle through that, through that, those areas, it was technically illegal. So The Public Security Bureau arrested us multiple times and put us under house arrest, which basically they'd make you check into some little Jiao dai soa, like some little roadside hostel kind of thing, or basically a place where Chinese truck drivers would stay. And then they put two guards at your door until they could shake you down for a bribe or figure out what they were going to do with you. You know, they'd accuse you of all manner of things, like being a spy. It was just, it was surreal.
0: Yeah, by the fourth or fifth time that happened, you probably got the routine down pretty well, though. You know, you probably didn't sweat it after the first few.
2: Yeah, we did. We did get a routine down, and it still was always unnerving, but um, we knew we were going to get out. And it, it ranged from waiting till, you know, there were a couple places where the the Public Security Bureau guards would, once we'd pretend to go to sleep, they would just start playing cards and getting drunk on Baijo. We just get on our bikes and leave in the middle of the night and ride with headlamps through the middle of the night into the next region where they don't have jurisdiction and they're never going to chase you anyway. So we realized that if we had the energy to flee in the middle of the night, that we were going to be able to get away from most of them. So we literally were on the run and it was kind of fun and exciting. You know, for 25 year old guys, it was. A lot of fun and excitement, and then there were other times where we would just realize that they were trying to shake us down for a bribe and give them a few hundred RMB, you know, which would have been the equivalent of like twenty US dollars, which was a lot of money for us two at the time. But like, this is our only way of getting out of this one quickly, and we we would bribe them. So,
0: sorry, not not that we recommend our, our guests uh, following your footsteps, but do you think that this trip would still be possible today, and, and do you think it'd be similar in an experience?
2: I'm not really sure if it would be possible. And also because I'm not even sure if a lot of those roads would still exist. China's modernized so much over the past 25 years. And I feel like a lot of trunk roads and fire roads that were existed at the time are now paved over. Sure, It could be just so heavily trafficked with vehicles, which which is another reason why, you know, a couple of years ago when we were looking to do a, a new big film project, that was mountain bike related and adventure in China, we ended up going way up into the Himalayas to, so that we don't have to deal with any kinds of fire roads or trunk roads or anything like that. And we're literally just carrying our bikes and riding
1: over really hostile terrain sorry that kind of brings us right into actually the next part we wanted to talk to you about and and where we kind of you caught our attention again you have a one of your latest productions online is the Korra, where you and two friends head out to Szechuan province to over 10 days do a circumnavigation of some holy mountains to cleanse yourself of wrongdoings and deeds i mean how did the idea for that trip come about and how did you even know the route and where to go the team that
2: I did that with. It's just uh, two other people. We like. I like to work in very small groups and make self-supported uh, trips because it keeps everything kind of stripped down and simple logistically. The two guys were a guy named Joey Schuessler and um, one of his childhood friends, Sam Seward, and they're both natives of Colorado, real mountain men, and uh, they're real whippersnappers. They're you know they're still in their twenties. We had just been talking. We'd done an adventure in. Uh, the former soviet republic of georgia a couple of years before and made a film about that and had a great trip and we were like what well, what's next for us right like, well let's do something in in china because we want to get into some even higher mountains thinking of various parts of the himalayas that section of southwest sichuan province is very kind of unexplored in terms of the bicycle and then also in terms of like Regions of the Himalayas that are haven't been like documented with people doing things on bicycles. So we're like, let's just go there. And the fact that I speak Chinese, like made it that much more appealing. We're like, oh, the logistics are all easy. We just fly into Chengdu and we hired this guy to drive us for four days up into the Himalayas and to drop us off. (laughs) <laughs> for for two weeks easy as that
0: guess. <laughs> i have a question about the equipment because uh, scott was scott and i were talking about it before we, we rang you up and uh we're thinking when you're going that remote and you're going for a long period of time like you need to bring spare parts and equipment to make sure that like any sort of breakdowns you have can be dealt with and i was thinking maybe you even had the same bikes did you guys ride do you ride the same bike so you only need less spare parts to bring along or what kind of equipment do you bring to make sure you're going to be okay
2: we all were on that trip. We fortunately we were all on the same bike uh, because we had a you know, one of the financial backers of the trip was a Colorado mountain bike company called the Eddy Cycles. They, you know, they wanted us to be on their bikes for obvious reasons. You know, those bikes are very reliable and we are very familiar with with the nuances of their suspension platforms and things like that. So we, we were able to kind of minimize the amount of tools that we would need to take basically all three of the bikes we could work on with a very small set of tools. But we do carry things that are weight heavy, which is which is a problem with these types of trips because you're spending it, probably at least half the time with the bike on your shoulders, climbing up over very steep ridgelines at 15,000, 16,000 feet of elevation. You know, So every gram technically matters, but at the same time, you need things like you need to carry a SAM splint in case someone you know breaks their femur and you need to you you know, you need to do something about that. Or, you know, we carry a spare derailleur. The derailleur is a part of your bike, the rear derailleur that hangs off the the back of your bike and it's kind of vulnerable to big rocks and stuff when you're plowing through those scree fields. Um, Carrying a spare derailleur, you know, a a bleed kit for your brakes. There's certain things that you just have to kind of take a spare or two, and that's added weight. And then there's all the filming equipment because we're it's only three people production yeah. and we're shooting still photography for a magazine feature. Plus, we're making a film out of it. So at any given moment, we'll have two people riding, and then the person who's not riding is shooting both the video component for the film and set that up, and then also shooting the still uh, while that's happening. It made us. It made us good at multitasking. On those trips that I do with with Joey and Sam, we end up agreeing to skimp on food and carrying, so we basically don't have enough calories to really fuel us every day just to offset the loads so that we can ensure we have enough camera batteries to take with us to to actually succeed in making the film. Um, So we'll we'll come back. I think that that trip, I was almost 15 pounds lighter after only 10 days.
1: Pretty wild. For I, I pack heavy and I've watched, uh, you know, your Georgia video and the Cora, and I just can't wrap my head around, you know, 10 days carrying all your own stuff, including the parts, the batteries, as you've just described. I mean, thinking about this core route, what were the people like in that area and, and what stood out as really different and unique on this trip compared to other areas you've been?
2: Once we got up into high into the Himalayas, like we did a little bit you know, the Kora is a circular route around Three Holy Mountains in uh, that part of China. And I should say his, what is historically Tibet, inhabited mostly by ethnic Tibetans who still practice Tantric Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism. For them to make a holy pilgrimage walking around this circuit around Three Holy Mountains, it's something that every Tibetan who lives in that region wants to do in their lifetime because it's a holy pilgrimage. And, you know, they believe it can kind of reverse a lifetime of negative karma. Given the time that we went, we were in the middle of the monsoon. And so it rained so hard on us every day. So we actually didn't run into a lot of Tibetans up there on the trails because they were too smart to be there in the middle of the monsoon. Right. And <laughs> and that was just the window that we had vis-a-vis all of our other job commitments so we had to do it at that time but we did we did encounter probably five or six groups of tibetans that were doing the the kora you know they'd never seen westerners up there with bicycles before so they were pretty gobsmacked by it they'd tell us i know, i did see if i could find someone in the group who could speak chinese and talk to them and they're just like what are you doing on bicycles up here this is hard enough to walk but we found on bike trips in places that are even considered you know holy circuits when you run into the actual pilgrims they're actually delighted to see you and they don't think you're doing anything irreverent at all one thing that we realized during the course of that journey and especially I should say personally i realized these three holy mountains you know i think generally in the west we view those as being symbols of various gods in the buddhist pantheon I've realized that the Tibetans actually don't view the mountains as the symbols. They view them as the actual gods. Certainly holy holy places,
0: right? And that's probably why they accepted you and thought you were it was cool that you were there because they could tell that you're there to appreciate the mountains that that they find so special. Okay. So and especially because like you didn't end up making it all the way around the the Korra route. Uh, we saw on the, on the, if people watch the video, and we'll have a link to uh, the videos that we're, we're talking about with Bryce as well, so that our listeners can check them out. But uh, spoiler alert, you, you didn't end up making it all the way around, and uh, you came across a river that had been washed out, or the bridge had been washed out. In the film, you don't quite explain, but what happens when you get along a route like that, and you're like, uh, it's a dead end now.
2: Yeah, well, we actually did finish the entire Kora route, the actual part that, that the Tibetans do on their pilgrimage, but we'd carved out for our trip a much bigger route so that we would start from the town of Yading and then ride up to the route and then ride back into the town of Yading. So we did you know we completed that entire Kora circuit, but it was trying to get back to the town of Yading. we <laughs> we decided we we're gonna be super clever and and try to go into this valley that we'd seen you know you can sandbag yourself so hard, Google Earth. You know, we decided we were going to try to do this so that we would not have to hit any kind of road for the entire journey. And we'd be able to get back to the actual hotel where we were going to stay in yachting. And we went into this river gorge, which, you know, against my advice, I, I have to say, while it was actually raining and it just started, you know, flash flooding and we got deeper and deeper into the gorge and it became clear at a certain point that we can't go any deeper. So we had to turn all the way around, go all the way back up. It, was, it took us a few hours to get out of that gorge that we'd gone into. And then take this road that was still another probably 40 kilometers into yachting itself. And so we were able to ride out, which is one thing we were never able to explain in the film because we we wanted
1: to leave it kind of this open-ended. So you've done some incredibly epic things. Uh, You mentioned you just turned 50, but you're obviously super still fit. Are there any other Asian adventures on your big to-do list? Last year was a big
2: year for for me and a bunch of the the guys I work with. And I I think when I met you, Scott, we had just finished a big adventure in Bhutan Mm -hmm. and had been the first people that were able to ride mountain bikes in this kind of remote stretch of the Bhutanese Himalayas there were other trips to you know, Argentina and a uh, circumnavigation around Mount Elbrus in Russia that we did last year and then I managed to squeak off a trip just when the COVID-19 crisis was was starting to be felt um in the Chilean Andes and we actually just made it out of the country the last day before the, that country got put put on lockdown so obviously we haven't been able to fulfill any of other uh, our other plans for this year. And uh, Joey and Sam and I, the same guys that I did the Kazbegi trip in the Republic of Georgia and the Quora trip with, um, we were meant to a month from now be in Tajikistan in the Pamir's, but that's been put on hold. So all of our sponsors are still there for us and hopefully we'll be able to just do it again next year in
0: 2021. And and obviously you are quite the the adventurer. So Maybe for our listeners, if someone more more human wanted to do a biking adventure in Asia, like what would you recommend or what words of wisdom or advice do you have for someone with uh, more maybe intermediate uh, biking skills? Where would you send them in Asia to to go?
2: Oh, wow. There's so many. There's so many places like if you if for people who like to ride. Uh, road bikes. Taiwan is a wonderful place to ride both road and mountain bikes. And it's one of the safest countries in the world and some of the friendliest people you'll meet anywhere in the world. You know, it doesn't matter, you know, for for women, there won't be the same safety issues that, that they would face in a lot of countries in the world. Group, group of couple women riding bikes around Taiwan. And I, I feel there would be very few safety issues involved. So Taiwan would be one place. Hong Kong's a good place to go. You know, if you, it's easy to get to. There's the infrastructure, and there are people there who know the trails really well, who can take you around on some some pretty nice trails, and choose the trails in accordance with your skill level. So Hong Kong's a pretty good
1: place as well.
0: Yeah, you know, we really need to do a, we need to do a Taiwan episode. It's come up a lot lately, and uh, we've heard a lot of good things.
1: Well, look, last question, Bryce. You've been really kind with your time. It has nothing to do with what we've been talking about, but I read about this yesterday and I have to ask you that you met Muhammad Ali in North Korea. Can you quickly tell us about that?
2: Yes, um, the, uh, I was there. It was when I was living in Beijing in 1995 and I got an opportunity to go there. They were having a, what they called the Pyongyang International Sports and Culture Festival for Peace, which is a real mouthful. I ended up getting to go there where the group, where person I was staying with, we were allowed to, for various reasons to stay in a person's apartment. And whereas the main press corps were able, that they had to stay in the Choreo Hotel, which is the, the hotel that was approved for foreigners in downtown Pyongyang. But the group I was with, break time in our day, and you know every tour was rigidly controlled where you were going to go at whatever time. And you had your handlers that were watching you the whole time. I wanted to buy some North Korean stamps because I used to kind of be into collecting communist mem- memorabilia. I knew there was a stamp store in the Koryo Hotel. So I was. they stopped at the van there and I walked into the lobby and there were, Muhammad Ali was because they'd invited him to be there as a kind of an, you know, an anti-Western and propaganda piece because, you know, he was kind of considered a outside of the mainstream of us politics to put it delicately i think in their from their prism within which they viewed that they were like this would be a great anti-american to have at the pyongyang international sports and culture festival for peace what you know i actually got to talk to him because i I, i'm not like a the type of person that's usually you know awestruck when you see a celebrity but because muhammad ali is someone i had immense respect for that you know, for for the person he was, and for his athletic abilities, and I literally froze in my tracks. It was like the champ. He just came over. He was already in that you know stages of Parkinson's and everything, but was completely lucid. You know, started talking to me. He was like, "Hey, where are you going next?" And I was like, "Well, our group is going to watch uh, a marionette show, Korean North Korean marionette show." And he's like, "That's where my group's going." Twenty five minutes later, we're all there seated and he was like, sit next to me. I sat in between him and his bodyguard and watched the marionette show. And, you know, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of a highlight of my life because like, I mean, what a random event. And then he's just sitting there cracking jokes about the marionette show the entire time and, and actually kind of calling bullshit on, on North Korea itself, despite the fact that their idea was that he would be a great ambassador for their political agenda
1: That's an awesome story and incredible experience. So uh, look, Bryce, thanks so much. You've been super, super kind um, with your time. So thanks so much for sharing with us.
0: Yeah, I hope you guys have a a great rest of your day. Hey, Scott, uh, great
1: chatting with Bryce there. Yeah, it was really incredible. And I've sort of stumbled upon Bryce a few times as we've talked about already. And I can't wrap my head around the stuff that he does. You know, I was just cycling in Northern Thailand and, you know, I just worry about a flat tire. My brake pads had an issue and, you know, I was what, 50 kilometers from a bike shop. Whereas when those guys head out, you know, for 10 days, again, they have minimal stuff and they're carrying like one derailleur or one bleed kit. Like it's just going that remote and, and skimping on food for the sake of equipment is, is, is truly epic. Yeah. The, the,
0: the cameras, the cameras need food too. I like that the batteries replace their food supply. And if you look at a Google map, it's a long way from, I mean, everybody knows that China is a big country, but like the, the border of Pakistan is is as far as you can get from Beijing.
1: Yeah, it's epic. And you said you just looked up the start or the starting point for their Kora bike trip and that that. It was really out in the middle of nowhere too, right? Yeah, it's the end of the road. I'm like,
0: how did they even get there? And then I was like, how are they? How would they get back once you get to the Pakistan border? It's not like you just jump on a high speed train, but maybe you do. I don't know. China's developing pretty quickly, uh, which is something he mentioned in his talk as well. So yeah, super interesting guy.
1: Yeah, really. And I think uh, this continues our quest this season to talk about a lot of things and a lot of areas that we haven't on previous seasons, and and talking to real experts in them. So it was really great of Bryce to lend us. His time for all of you uh, listening do remember that trevor and i do this for fun we pay all expenses out of our own pocket and uh, we need some financial support so please go to patreon.com look for talk travel asia and sponsorship starts from a dollar per month please help us out if you enjoy the show and it'll keep it running so from bangkok this is scott saying thanks for listening adios trevor take us out of this thing
0: yeah thanks uh, for listening everyone thanks bryce for being on the show and uh, to any new listeners, uh, you know, check out our show notes. We've done over 100 episodes now. This is the second one we've done recently uh, about biking in Asia. And uh, as Scott just mentioned, yeah, we have a whole bunch of really cool episodes queued up for season three here. Um, so stay tuned. we got some interesting guests talking about some interesting places here in Asia. And hopefully you're all able to travel and come and visit here soon.
1: Thanks for joining us on Talk Travel Asia. We look forward to sharing with you again soon. Hey Scott, do you remember the time we walked on top of the wall at Angkor Tom and Cameron?